You are listening to the Bondzilla Podcast. The Bondzilla Podcast is a bi-monthly analysis of two of cinema's longest-running franchises, James Bond and Godzilla. This week, James Bond faces off with an insane media mogul who's trying to start World War III. It's 1997's Tomorrow Never Dies. James Bond. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Bondzilla podcast. Uh, we are back for more Pierce Brosnan fun. I am Nick. And I'm Will. And, uh, but we do have a little bit of news to get to right away yes. before we get into the yeah. production of this. It's always kind of nice when we have some, like, you know, relevant news uh, when it comes to the yeah. re- respective franchises yep um should you do you want to take the reins well, on this one so last time we actually talked a little bit about um bond not having a director anymore mm-hmm. and uh, not really having a film to to go with <laughs> um uh, increasing nick's somewhat irrational fear that like this is just a movie not happening <laughs> yes like it's just not um, a james bond there's but, just not gonna be a james bond movie but we do have some news in that they finally found themselves a director right and that man it, is carrie fuganagua fuganagua who is most known for um not directing not it. directing <laughs> movies uh he you know he's the big creative force behind true detective season one yes um, and he's been involved, like he's kind of one of those big rising names. He's involved in like a lot of different rumored projects, but this was one he finally stepped on board one. We also got announced that the date was delayed a couple months. So now the movie will be coming out in February, 2020 instead right. of November, 2019. Yeah. Um, cool. Cool for Mr. Fuganagua. Yeah. Yeah. So he's doing that. And if I recall, some of the other behind-the-scenes information is that they're going back to the original script, yeah. script that they when, had before when, Danny Boyle came Boyle on. Because Boyle came on, and Boyle like threw everything out wanted to do his own thing. And right. now that Boyle's not there anymore, they're going back to whatever the original plan was right. for Craig's final movie. I mean, to me, it's like, I think it's an interesting choice for director. I mean, I, I, it was not a name that was really rumored, so kind of it was nice to kind of see that come to fruition. Like, oh, just a name. Yeah, right. Like, it's kind of getting known. But it, it's there is still an element of me that I, I would be more excited for, for, especially even Carrie, if it wasn't Craig again. Well, like, it's just, it just hard for me to just imagine that, like... You know, and and we'll see the footage when it when it actually happens when the when this trailer comes out and we finally get a title for Bond twenty five. Yeah, but, but I have but I have an un, I have a controversial opinion about this though, mm-hmm. like an probably an unpopular one. It, it's like all right, so we had Danny Boyle, now it's Carrie Fukunaga, with it, and these are great directors. Don't get yeah. me wrong, but you know we're talking about what the next Bond movie is going to be. These are all not exciting choices to me. Well, these are all very. <laughs> Like, they're fine, but it's just like, you know, you put that in combination with it's another Craig movie, which both of you are on the same page of, that we should have just moved on into. I'm just, I'm I'm at the point where I'm, I want the real different Bond. Mm-hmm. And again, it just comes down to the type of movie it is and, and the type of filmmakers that we're getting. So, again, no diss towards Kerry Fukunaga. I mean, for myself, 
it, it kind of just seems like this is a director everybody just wants to do something based off of True Detective, which I have not seen. But I don't know. You, Nick, you know me. Like, yeah. oh, well, the guy did the serious crime show. He should do James Bond is not the sell is no. not the ticket. For well, me. it's also like he's he's done the curious, uh, he's done the the serious crime show and then has been like dropping in and out of various projects. Right, he should be the next because that always always happens. They do the one thing, the director does the one thing, writer does the one thing that everybody loves, right. and then they kind of drop in and out of projects, and mm. then it turns out that. You know, maybe they had that one hit, or maybe they just, they're not these fits for these other projects. But at least we're getting it, the movie. Now, <laughs> like, at least we know we're getting the movie. Mm-hmm. So. Apparently. <laughs> you're still not, you're still not convinced. I need a title. I, that's what I, like, <laughs> listen, this is Bond 25. Again, it should be, it's a 25th Bond yeah. movie. That's a big deal. But I need, I need my title. I uh, need it to be titled before I officially say, okay, we're, we're here's because as long as it's Bond twenty five, it's still kind of an active production. And once it gets a title, I can kind of say, okay, you're gonna actually make this thing. Uh, but all right. Anyway, let's talk about a Bond movie that did come out. It did come out. Yes. yes. So uh, our Bond movie today, yes, is second uh, Brosnan, Brosnan two, Brosnan two, uh, also known as from nineteen ninety seven, Tomorrow Never Dies. Yes. So, I had seen Goldeneye, and I had seen, after watching this one, I had seen bits and pieces of this one, mm-hmm. but I had never sat through this one before. Right. All right, so why don't we hop on to this? So, Goldeneye comes out. Yep, Goldeneye yeah. comes out, end of December 1995, and is a major, major success. You know, the highest grossing Bond movie of all time at that point, you know, $350 million or whatever, you know, right up there, and... It, it really is something that puts MGM back on the map mm-hmm. as a film company because it's their big success. And Bond is really their only major franchise um, at that point, mm-hmm. um, especially because, you know, we've talked about it on the podcast. MGM had had so many issues with bankrupt near bankruptcy and getting sold and resold. And at that time of GoldenEye, they were actually on the market again. Um, because it was basically like the previous company put them up to like a, an auction type of deal or like they, they moved it to like a holding company and the holding company was like, okay, well now we gotta, we gotta sell it. Right. Um, so, but, but now GoldenEye makes it more attractive for buyers because, okay, we have this major franchise, you know, we're in the nineties blockbusters are, you know, moving up and, and happening and making this big deal. Um, and so MGM is bought once again by its actually previous owner, Kirk, uh, Kerorian. And uh, it's actually the third time he's owned this company, mm-hmm. but he kind of bought it at uh, even even though Goldeneye was successful, he bought it at a lesser price than he sold it as. Mm-hmm. So he still made a little bit of money and got back in charge. And and the, yeah, sorry, no, finish your thought, and then I want to say something. Uh, don't go ahead. No, I I just find it so fascinating with this franchise because the legalities and like all this background, like rights issues, it, it's like almost never ending. Mm-hmm. Yet. They still seem to somewhat consistently put out films. Well, yeah, because because you got to remember too, though. It's like this is all on the distribution end. Like Eon Productions, again, their whole setup is just Bond movies. Right. They're not making anything else. Right. They're not focused on anything else. Sure. They have no uh, desire to make anything. But else. I'm just saying. But so when it's you like think about it. Yeah. Like oh yeah, you would think like these legal entanglements would still. 
impede it. Yeah, but yeah. it doesn't. It, yeah. it, at least it doesn't seem to be. No, it's a, because because Eon's always pushing. Eon, I think what it is is that Eon on its own, like they make they have their money, they have you know their little cash, and they get cash from you know obviously the distribution and, mm-hmm. and MGM and United Artists and all that stuff, and we're gonna talk about that in a second. But but the thing is is that Eon always has. In a, in, in a general sense, something ready to go. Mm. So that when all these legal stuff is done with, they're like, okay, well, we have something. You know, we, we have an idea. We have something to push towards. Like, you got to think about, like, even with GoldenEye, it's like even though that script, you know, changed from the Dalton version with the nanomachines into what GoldenEye became, they were always working on that movie. Mm-hmm. And same thing with, you know, when, when the Saltzman and Broccoli, you know, relationship deteriorated after Man with the Golden Gun. They're always kind of working on, okay, well, what's next? We're a spy who loved me, and then all that stuff with Spectre and stuff like that, and then all that sort of stuff. Right. So they're always working at it so that it's not like, oh, we can do a Bond movie now, now let's ramp up the production. It's right, more right, like, right. okay, well, we have things ready to go. We just need the time and the place and the money to do it. Mm-hmm. So anyway, Kirk Corkian uh, um, repurchases MGM. Mm-hmm. And his big plan is to finally take MGM public, to, to put out a public stock offering, put it on the stock market, and make it a big deal to kind of, you know, re-buy interest in it. You know, he's going to make this big Bond film. They're going to start their TV stuff, which, beca- which begins the Stargate series um, on television. And that's, they're going to they're gonna be a big 1997. So the plan is, is that they're going to make a public stock offering, and in the end of 1997... And they're going to have the big Bond movie to promote that. So MGM sets a hard date of December 1997 for the release. And they set this release pretty much mid-1996, which does not give a lot of time for that movie to produce. Mm -hmm. So really, it's interesting because it's more so like kind of an old-school Bond production. If you remember those old Bond films, came out year after year and had very short production turnarounds, which is... Worked maybe worked in the '60s and the '70s, right? But once yeah. you get to like a '90s production schedule, it, it becomes a bit well, of a the nightmare. needs are different yeah. then too. Bit yeah. of a nightmare. And uh, the other thing that kind of puts that at an even more edge is that you could you know you could have had Carby Broccoli, you know, who had the experience on those films, maybe giving some pointers of how to most effectively mm-hmm. do that. But unfortunately, Cubby does pass away in mid 1990. Six mm-hmm. uh, at the age of eighty-seven. Right. So briefly, let's just talk about Cubby. I mean, like it's—he's such a figure in these movies. We've oh, had yeah. so many stories about his his passion, but really, it's like it's—it was just he's. If we really talk about what has made these Bond movies continue, it's—it was Cubby's passion all the way through. Even when he loses Saltzman, even with all these legal issues, it was right. always Cubby that was like, "We're going to make this." Well, and it's the benefit of like when you have like again, I know like Eon is personally the the, the bomb movies are what they do, mm-hmm. but as we talked about, like this is where you do see the benefit of like a one creative voice at least uh, commanding the ship yeah. a little bit, um, you know, uh, in you know taking more of a hands on approach right. with it because he's like it's not like oh he's just the producer who oversees everything like he seems always like a pivotal role in yeah, and, every movie that we've he, discussed he, thus far and he's such a creative force and like a force of making sure these movies run smoothly even when they had those rough productions right. of a year every he's year he's the he's the Kevin Feige of uh, yeah. bond movies and, yeah and and so now it's really up to, with with him gone mm-hmm. uh it's really up to Michael G. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli to continue 
you know, that legacy. And, and you know, they Wilson had been working for him since the 70s. Barbara obviously grew up with him and, and been working on the Bond film since the 80s. So now they they really feel like it's their, you know, it's their time to, to push things through. Mm. But they got to figure out what to do very rather quickly now. Um, so Bruce Feistein, who wrote the previous Bond movie, uh, Goldeneye, mm-hmm. uh, has, has had this idea for a while of, um, he has two ideas. One is to involve Hong Kong because uh, in a thing that's been brewing for a decade, uh, in 1997, actually on July 1st, 1997, Britain is going to give control of Hong Kong back to China. Mm-hmm. And this is actually a big deal. It's been something that's been in the works since the mid-80s, and now it's finally going to be, the handoff's finally going to happen. And so he thought it would be cool to revolve a script around that real-world event where, like, something, you know, something happens right at the handoff and Bond has to save the day. Mm-hmm. The other idea that he has that he wants to involve in the script is journalism. Uh, right. That um, he was a former journalist and he had this idea as he kind of pitched it is that, like, you know, you know journal, uh, journalists are the new armies, satellites are the new weapons. Mm-hmm. That sort of idea is actually a, a line in the movie. Uh, but this idea that, like, the power of media and, and sort of, you know, that sort of idea. Right, right. But then again, we also enter that period of where satellites and computers are always the bad guy yeah. now. Yeah. yeah. Because it used to be, like, it was funny because I make that joke all the time, but we go back into some old Bond movies, and there were always, like, satellites and some right. maybe like, computer shenanigans, but here it's where it's, like... It's really, yeah, like... Yeah, like, it's you the know, bad like, guy's talk, tool. You've had your Moonrakers, and yeah. you've had, you know, like, your stuff with, um, you know... Uh, you, know, you only live twice and stuff like that. But it, it just seems like now we're entering the period where so many Bond movies always have like a little tablet mm-hmm. and they have their screens yeah. and they're like, I control the world with a press of a button. <laughs> uh, so Bryce Feinstein wrote, writes the original script rather quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, it involves a medial, medium mogul mm-hmm. named uh, Elliot Harmsway. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, who wants to uh, whose plan is to nuke Hong Kong on the day uh, that it's being handed back to Chinese control mm-hmm. because his idea is not only to promote his newspaper but he'd rather you know he's rather destroy Hong Kong than give it back to the Chinese right. um, it also involved uh, a major theft of British gold as part of the plot and the Bond girl of that script was a uh, girl named Sydney who was the daughter of a Harmsway associate who wanted to stop Harmsway's plan, mm. and it, more more on the kind of um, the view to a kill uh, type of thing where she's like, oh, she's a civilian Bond girl, but like tries right. her best to like you know do her thing. So that was like, kind of that original script, and it was very much focused about on that July first handoff, and that was the script that they had for a very very long time mm-hmm. as they were ramping up production, uh, but they're starting to get their locations and things like that. And they plan on reusing the uh, studios that they made for Goldeneye, the Leviston film studios that they made at that aircraft carrier. Mm-hmm. And as the story goes, they had the deal in place. Uh, they were expected to close the deal like on like in August, you know, for filming starting in January. So like it's like August 23rd, they're ready to go. On August 24th, they get a call from the film studio saying that, oh, I'm sorry, George Lucas needs this studio <laughs> for the entirety of uh, episode one. <laughs> so now that studio is completely right. like off to them. Now their production manager is tasked with, because Levinston isn't available to them, 
Pinewood is like barely available to them. They may be able to get a day or two at the Pinewood Studios. Mm. Uh, so he has to create another new film studio. Uh, <laughs> and he finds an abandoned supermarket warehouse not too far actually from the Levinston site uh-huh. uh, that they were able to convert. But it's a very quick conversion. And actually, uh, just on the story of that, he is he finishes the conversion of that studio like the day before they're supposed to film there. So. Uh, so this film is kind of moving along. The budget keeps increasing. Uh-huh. Uh, it's actually one of the most significant budget increases for a Bond film, as Goldeneye had about a $50, $60 million budget, mm-hmm. and this one has a $110 million budget. Mm-hmm. But most of that budget is actually covered by the product placement. So it's it's noted as one of the first films to really get a big budget for yeah. through product placement, because you got to think about Avis, yeah. L'Oreal, Smirnoff, Heineken, BMW. Um, See, that's interesting. I'm like one of those weird people. I don't really notice product placement in a movie. I don't really too, but like... But I have this weird thing like with product placement. Like if it takes place in the real world... Like, you're going to see a Pepsi somewhere. Yeah. So I guess I just never Mm. notice it. That's fair enough. Yeah, but but that's just me. It's very interesting. Um, So uh, they try their best. You know, so now they have this script kind of going. It's now September 1996. They Mm -hmm. need to start filming in January to get the film out by December. Uh, So they need a director. Mm -hmm. And they've been trying their best to convince Martin Campbell to come back from Goldeneye. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Martin Campbell just distinctly refuses. And his agent basically said he just he just doesn't want to do two bonds in a row. That's just not him. That's okay. not his thing. Uh, so they go with another choice, a man named Roger Spottiswood, mm-hmm. uh, who was a Canadian-British film director, born in Canada, moved to Britain when he was young. Um, he is most known as uh, he he edited some of Sam Peckinpah's later films, wrote the Eddie Murphy movie Forty Eight Hours, okay. and end up directing uh, both Turner and Hooch and uh, <laughs> Stop or My Mom Will Shoot, starring Sylvester Stallone. Okay, so interesting. He, he, it's an interesting choice. Yeah, for interesting sure. uh, resume mm-hmm. there. Um, so Roger comes in in September, and right when he comes in, there is a major issue with the script, mm-hmm. thanks to MGM. So MGM takes a look at this script, and they're like, "Well, a couple things. One, this movie's coming out in December. This handoff happens in July. Is this really going to have relevancy?" Are people going to know and remember that the Chinese were handed Hong Kong? Right, right. Uh, and then some executive at MGM <laughs> uh-huh. decides to talk to former U.S. Secretary of Defense Henry Kissinger okay. about the script. <laughs> and Henry says, well, wouldn't it be embarrassing if something actually happened, you know, if some actual terrorist event happened in, in that thing, and then you're, you have, you're making a movie about, like, you know, very tragic real-life event. Right, right. And so the, the people at MGM are like, okay, no, we're not doing this. Right. We're, we're throwing the script out. So, again, this is September. They have to start filming in January because MGM <laughs> is not moving that December release date because they have to have the public stock offering uh-huh. with the Bond movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So now... The only things being kept from the script are the Elliot Harmsway character mm-hmm. and his wife, uh, which is becomes Paris Carver. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so Roger comes up with this one-week brainstorm section of just like, okay, well, how can we salvage this? What can we do? Um, and he ends up hiring uh, for an uncredited rewrite, Nicholas Meyer. Nicholas Meyer is a writer-director most famous for his contributions to the Star Trek series because mm-hmm. he wrote and directed Wrath of Khan, wrote Voyage Home, and then also directed um, 
the Undiscovered Country, the last of the original series movies. So he does an uncredited rewrite on the script alongside a couple other writers. Uh, so this basically starts the script that we know. The Sydney character is replaced by a Chinese agent, Wai Lin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the script gets its title, which is Tomorrow Never Lies. <laughs> that title makes way more sense mm-hmm. than so what we end up with. they fax... They this they're they're gonna they do they do they type it up and they fax the title mm-hmm. and they fax the script to MGM, but the version of the script they fix has a typo on the first page. <laughs> yes, <laughs> instead of saying tomorrow never lies, tomorrow. it says tomorrow never dies. But the MGM executives go nuts over that title. Uh-huh. Absolutely love it. And they're like, hey, that's our title. Uh huh. So they are still working on this script. Mm-hmm. But by the time production starts in January, they do not have a completed script. So basically, daily rewrites are happening mm-hmm. on the script when the production starts. Okay. So now I'm going to finally get into the casting of this movie. Right. Because what was also very interesting is that by that September, they had the finished script. They were just about to start casting. Uh-huh. But then they threw out the entire script. And now they're like, well, the only characters we can cast are Elliot Harmsway, mm-hmm. which becomes Elliot Shroudway, <laughs> and then becomes Elliot Carver. Okay, all right. Um, so the only characters they can cast initially are Elliot Carver and Paris. Okay. So Elliot Carver, the initial casting for Elliot Carver. The villain of the The villain of the, this the, movie, the, the media mogul, yeah. was Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> okay, so I can see that one. Anthony Hopkins was originally, they wanted him for, you know, um, they Golden want, Eye, yeah. and he didn't want to do it. This seems like a better Hopkins, yeah, role, Hopkins role. If if it if he did so take it. he comes into the role and he likes like okay I'm gonna do this movie. Oh he was like that close. Yeah to he was that close. It. But right when he came in is when they threw out the entire script and uh-huh. so now he came into a production that was like gonna film in January with no script mm-hmm. and he didn't even know like what his character was gonna be so he left three days after he said he was gonna do it and ended up doing the Mask of Zorro instead. So he w- he was very close to actually doing uh, the Elliot Carver role. So basically, so then he goes to do a movie where he's he's a, he's he, a mentor. He's a mentor figure. Yeah. <laughs> so he eventually got he there. He eventually, eventually got there. Eventually, yes. Yeah. Um, but so so with Hopkins out, okay, uh, that leaves room for Jonathan Price. Yes. And Jonathan Price himself said like the role came out of the blue. It the production seemed crazy, but it seemed like a role I could do, right? And it seemed like something I could get done. For some reason, he kind of seems like the kind of guy where he's like, "Yeah, I like James Bond movies. Yeah, I'll be a villain." Like he just kind of seems like that type of dude from the little I know about him. And then, uh, so he's cast, and then they cast Paris, who as uh, Terry Hatcher, mm-hmm. uh, who was most known at that time for being Lois on the Lois and Clark TV series. And the thing about that role that's very interesting uh, from some of the writers who have talked about it is that very early on in the process, that role, the the ex-wife or the ex-lover of Bond, the wife of Elliot Shroudway or whatever, Elliot Carver, Elliot Carver, uh, um, was going the media mogul, yeah, the media mogul (laughs) was going to be a Bond legacy character. Uh-huh. Um, so it was actually pitched. Um, Isn't this the second time that's happened? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so it was pitched to be um, Sylvia Trench mm-hmm. from his original girlfriend from Doctor No and from Rush with Love. Wow. Oh wow. Really yeah. calling back. Uh, or a Honey Rider as well from Doctor No. Uh, and even at one point it was just going to be Natalia from the previous movie. Right. But the Eon producers like Barbara and Wilson were then worried that like 
Bond fan. Because the, the idea that was that the, any, at all times the character was going to die. Right. And so people were like, well, if we if we bring back like Honey Rider and then we, we kill her, the Bond fandom is going to be, you know, the Bond hardcore fans are going to not be happy. Right. We just killed off, sure, you know, sure. like a, a legacy character. So they, they redid it as a, you know, just a character, um, a new character. And the thing about Terry Hatcher is that by the time that filming started, she was actually three months pregnant uh, with a child. Um, so uh, she took the role because her husband always wanted to be married to a Bond girl. That's <laughs> nice. why she took it. Um, and so her film, the filming was kind of catered around her pregnancy a little bit mm-hmm. uh, because it was unex- like it kind of by the time she was cast and the time the filming started, that kind of was like a little bit of a, you know, thing. Sure. Uh, then we have so with the new script we have the new Bond girl, uh, Wylin, mm-hmm. and it's Michelle Yao. Yes, um, who had not this was her first American role or her first English role I mm-hmm. should say, um, but she was basically a major Hong Kong action star yes. at the time. Yeah. Um, so she basically, uh, as she said, um, she she also came in with the script you know when it was in flux. But she had said, well, that's basically how Hong Kong action cinema is made. It's mm-hmm. just made with the script being written on the fly and action sequences come up on the fly. So basically, she's like, well, this is a normal production for me. Like, mm, I'm, I'm, interesting. In, I'm, I'm totally comfortable with this. Yeah. Uh, so she was just, sure, I mean, just, let's just do it. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get that sense that like a lot of Asian cinema isn't precious about its, you know, it, it's kind of like time mm-hmm. spent on set and like its production time yeah. as much. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, again, like you said, it's just the way that they operate can sometimes be different. Yeah. Uh, Especially for commercial films. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, the last casting I'll mention right now is Gotts Otto. He plays uh, the henchman in this movie, a Stamper. Oh, yeah. That yeah. guy. Blond- uh, uh, Blondie. Platinum. Yeah. Platinum guy. Blonde. Yeah. Uh, and I only mention this one because it's there's kind of a funny story behind it. Um, Share it. So lay it uh, on me. He's um, coming in for the audition, and then uh, you know he's coming in, and he's in the Barbara Broccoli's office. Barbara Broccoli, you know, is doing the film thing. She's taking a phone call, you know, and then you know her Barbara Broccoli's assistant's like, "Oh, Otto, Otto got's here for the audition." Mm-hmm. And then he looks, she looks up, and like on the phone's like, "Hey, I got a good-looking German guy here. I gotta go." And he's like, "All right, I, I'm, I've got this." Uh-huh. So then she starts the audition, and it's like, "Okay, well, why don't you just give me a 20-second introduction of yourself?" And then he responds, I'm big, I'm bad, I'm German. Five seconds, you can keep the other 15. (laughs) And then basically they were like... That is so dangerously close to being an asshole. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But basically that they just really liked each other. Uh Um, You know, and it just was immediately like, yeah, that's a cast. I mean, he's also... You know, auditioning to be the henchman, so it's really not like that, like that yeah. big of a deal. That big of a deal, yeah. No. Mm-hmm. But he he got the role, yeah. All right. Um. So now, how much we have on this? On this not section? too much, because okay. the thing about the main thing about this about the actual production mm-hmm. is that again, scripts were being rewritten daily. Cool. So much of what was happening in the movie, especially from an action standpoint, was kind of just on the fly, improvised. Cool. Think we can fit it in a five minute window or? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, just I'll just get the quick stuff out Let's of Let's do it. Okay. Uh, so they pre- pre- they begin the production on January. They do the pre-opening sequence with the, the, the stuff, missiles and stuff. But the mm. main stuff, while the second unit is doing all that, the main thing that the, the first unit is doing is getting ready to film in Vietnam. So mm. the second half of the movie kind of takes place, you know, on the Vietnam, Chinese, you know, you know that border right there. Right. Of the South China Sea. And... Um, they get permission on February of that year to film in Vietnam. 
So they've done their scouting. They're doing a last-minute scouting trip before they actually start filming at the end of February when they're suddenly told that Vietnam has rescinded all filming rights. <laughs> oh, no. So basically what was happening is that they were already sending a, a production ship. That's with, so funny because there's a joke in this movie that is kind of funnier knowing that information. Yeah. Uh, so they, um, yeah, they, they've already sent a production ship with crew and, and, and film yeah. and stuff to um, Vietnam and they have to divert it at the last second to Singapore because now they're no longer mm-hmm. permitted to get in the country. And so now they're like, okay, well, we st- we're still filming the script, we don't, which we don't have. Um, <laughs> we have to find a place to film these stuff because yeah. we, we have to get this done. Uh, and so Barbara and Roger and Michael G. Wilson all discuss it, and they're like, well, we can easily film Bangkok. Like, we can just do this quickly. Bangkok loves being filmed there. You know, we know people still there from when we filmed before with Man with the Golden Gun. There's still people around from that film industry. Um, so they basically, within five days, they move the production 6,000 miles to Bangkok and mm-hmm. just start shooting because they have to. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so like Vic Armstrong, who is the head of uh, the stunts on this movie, uh-huh. he gets a lot of opportunities to kind of do things on the fly because, again, script pages are coming in every day. Mm-hmm. And now you're having ideas, situations where – um, even stuff like, you know, the the roles of like stuff like Paris and Elliot Carver are mm-hmm. like s- shifting slightly over production because it's just the script is changing. Mm-hmm. And then they have to be like, well, I, this is not what I signed up for. Can I do something like this? And so they're doing that. So Vic is kind of like, while they're kind of trying to focus on the actual plotting, Vic is kind of like, okay, well, let's let's do this stunt work. So he wants to do this bike scene in, um, you know, in Bangkok, which is supposed to be Vietnam. And he's like, well, we're going to do not the traditional motor cross bike we're gonna do like the big bmw bikes and we're gonna do a whole bunch of new stuff with the bike work mm-hmm. um one funny thing about that real quick is that when they were doing the scene where michelle yao and and Rodson are getting on the bike together right roger told both of them separately don't let him get on the bike don't let her get on the bike and so they were basically <laughs> like a real life fight uh and then but it's it's also like funny because that is the set piece of the movie yeah i would argue and but but a lot of it was just scene. again on the fly it was yeah. just like what can we do with this bike interesting what can we do? All right, I have some thoughts about that. Um, but that is interesting. To and know. then they also do the big thing where they uh, go down the Elliot Carver face poster. Yes. Yeah. Um, so there's w- a bit in the movie where you know those giant posters they put on skyscrapers and mm-hmm. buildings that they like, like hang onto the top of it and it rips down and yeah. they're slowly like kind of falling with it. Yeah. So um, they it was inspired by the old school like you know kind of 30s like pirate movies where they would have the guy like coming down yeah the, the sail thing. yeah um so vic armstrong got one of his stuntmen and actually his wife uh vic armstrong's wife mm-hmm. to be the stunt doubles for that scene and it was a big fall they got a big actual ellie carver poster of jonathan price's face put it on a building uh-huh. and actually like had them slide oh down so it. that is like legit <laughs> that's oh. legit yeah oh cool it wasn't as high i oh, think yeah. it was like a 40, 46 story building or 46 Who's this tom yeah. cruise of course it's yeah. not that high. <laughs> uh speaking well speaking of tom cruise so this movie does have a halo jump Yes, it does. Not by Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, So B.J. Wirth, he did a similar jump, not a a similar jump, he did a similar thing in uh, Moonraker where he had the jump from the plane and he had the jump like 86 times to get that shot of the fight for the parachute. Uh, Well, he jumps 80 times. He does a halo jump 80 times uh, to do that sequence. Halo jump meaning high altitude, low orbit jump? Yeah. Yep. So he actually does the... Basically just jumping out of a plane Mm -hmm. very, very high. Yep. 
Uh, and really, what's what's kind of cool is because of the last minute nature of the production, they actually just go back to a bunch of places that they've filmed before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so really, um, like uh, for example, Bound Bangkok, uh, they do a lot of the same places they film out the Golden Gun at, including uh, the island that Scaramanga's Islands are is where they're actually sailing before they get captured by by Carver's people, uh, and some of the stuff around the car park, um, the car area, and like the hotel room where Bond and Terry Hatcher have sex is actually uh, locations that were used in Goldfinger as well. Uh, oh, oh, so really deep cuts going yeah. back into the... Yeah, so it's, it's basically like, again, it's that was just the nature of this production, is that they did not have a script. Uh, Bruce Feinstein comes back into production in like March or April. Basically, it'll be like, okay, you're our daily script writer. Like every day, we need if we need something, you're, you're, you're going to write it. because And we're just going to film it that day because mm-hmm. we need to make this movie. So they fin- eventually film... Film finish up filming in September, mm-hmm. which gives them about a month and a half to really edit the movie down, and the movie does get so released on time. Legitimately, a one year turnaround yeah. of all production. Mm-hmm. So they finished shooting in September, you said? Yeah. Or so okay, yeah. They finished right. shooting. So because you got to remember, so they had the they originally had the finished script in September. And yeah, no, they, that's they, what I'm they saying. They threw yeah. it out, and then they. They had some sort of semblance of an idea in January. So really less than a year to actually yeah. develop and shoot the film. Mm-hmm. Especially a movie like this. Like yes. act- yeah, that's, yeah, that's a... That's yeah. a- but the, they get it done. And it's very much like even a more intense version of, you know, again, those old school Bond productions. Like, yeah, all the way back to like From Rush With Love and how messed up that film production was mm-hmm. and how last minute it got. And it's always interesting, too, because really, especially on a modern filmscape where you have the pressure of becoming a big blockbuster franchise, because even like when we talk about Cubby, like in in essence, one of the things that Cubby does do is that he does legitimately sort of invent or or energize the blockbuster franchise. Mm -hmm. Because, again, we've talked about this many times, but before Bond, especially on a United States and an American level and a British level, there really wasn't major film franchises like that. Like, you had films that did a lot of versions of them. Like, there were 23 Blondie movies in the 50s. But you really had nothing that was like, okay, were these big budget, you know, films that we're just going to keep making sequels for. It was just like, now, and now in the 90s where you had, you you know, you had a legacy of Star Wars and Terminators and Diehards and stuff, where now it's a big deal and, and, and MGM's really banking on you to, to, to be a big moneymaker for them to really you know boost that company back up mm-hmm. there's a lot of pressure and it, it, it probably even was harder in a sense than any of those old like one year turnaround bond productions well said my friend but the question is as always nick does it pay off and we will talk about that after our break yes we're gonna talk about tomorrow never dies but today we're going to talk about today not yeah. tomorrow no yeah and we're not going to lie about it <laughs> yeah either. it's mostly dull routine of course but every now and then you get to sail on a beautiful evening like this and sometimes work with a decadent agent of a corrupt western power they say communists don't know how to have fun uh, i hate to disappoint you but i don't even have a little red book If anything happens to me, the fuses for the mines are in here. We're gonna finish this together. And if I may say so, you found the right decadent, corrupt, western agent as a partner. 
All right, we're back. So, Nick, uh, I enjoyed myself on this one. Solid Bond, for, yeah. solid Bond production. Don't know what people think, but I had a good time. I, I definitely think this is a solid movie. I will be honest, though, because I don't know 100% of how the – of just the canon of this type of Bond. I know eventually where we're going to get to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I guess for some reason, I don't know why I had it in my head that – I thought there was going to be much more of a drop off on no, this it's, one. No, it's it is a gradual drop off. Yeah. to be quite honest. And there were things about it where I was like, "Oh, this is the one with Jonathan Price." Like when mm-hmm. we opened up the menu, I'm like, "Oh, it's this one." Yeah. And then we started watching it. I'm like, "Oh, this is also the one with one of the best Bond catchphrases uh, <laughs> of all time." We'll get to that in yeah. a minute. But uh, you, my overall thought on this one is quite enjoyable. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Uh, one of my more enjoyable bonds. Uh, but hearing, I think hearing some of you, now your behind the scenes mm-hmm. information. This was a movie I think lacked the finesse that could have made it at least as good as Goldeneye. Yeah, I, and I think that all this not having like a like a proper script while making it, I think shows in yeah. retrospect now that I think I, about I 100% it. agree with you. That's that's the thing about this movie. I think it's still very enjoyable. It's still very fun. But there is that lack of finesse, and I think there are moments where you could kind of tell, all right, we're making this kind of yeah. on the fly. Especially yeah. like as you get towards the second half of the movie, um, where they're just kind of like, you know, even the post-bike chase or like even the third act where you're just kind of like trying to Get all the plot points and, and, well, and stuff together. So the the bike chase is, and to explain the bike chase, uh, Bond and uh, Lee Wen yeah. are basically handcuffed together, mm-hmm. and they end up having to escape from Carver and his goons, and they get on like a like a bike a motorcycle. Yeah, and it's a kind BMW, of BMW, right. the product placement, a BMW motorcycle, and basically they get on that, and it's this whole chase sequence from a helicopter. But it's also like very stunt driven. Like they're both attached to each other very awkwardly. So it's like, and then like sometimes both of them have to have a hand on like the, the handle. Right. And, no, and then like it, one's yeah. like looking the other way. And so they're kind of. Covering it, but I, I did feel that while that was cool, I did feel like it wasn't quite executed as like just as well as like an action. Yeah. As beat. It, like as it, action it, it was, there was, a, it was a few suspect editing choices in it. And I felt like. Other than like them flipping around each other, it's just a lot of like they drive. Yeah. Cut to this. They're driving more. It's like there's there wasn't anything like really like mm-hmm. stand out yeah, about and that sequence. It's really like uh, not all the movie, but most of the movie just feels like that. Even in its discussion scenes and like the, as the plot moves. Yeah. And it, it is like you can one of the reasons you could tell it was very much like oh we're just scripting this on the fly is that it's a very Everything about it is kind of simple, and not in a bad way. But it's like everything about it is like, oh, this is just the plan, yeah, and like it's I mean, not. It, there's not like like the more twist and the in the, the investigation and stuff. It's more so like, oh, this is just we're moving to the next thing of of Carver's plan, and yeah. like or the next, you know. Uh, well, it never quite it. goes. I, I don't. There is not, and I don't want to call Goldeneye like a deep movie, but there's just something about this one. It never quite goes. It goes. Never goes. Those the extra that, level. That never goes in that next step. Yeah, because I actually because it's it's fine. Because that it is fine and entertaining. It's a solid just watch and a solid movie with lots of really fun and solid moments. Mm-hmm. But it never really 
puts itself up there with like that next, yeah, that right. next level of depth. But that all said, one thing I loved about this movie is it's so what I want out of James Bond. It's got the, it it, is, it's got the silliness. It's got the quip. I am starting to at least like how they're establishing some of these characters a little bit more like especially like when we get into like the mi6 crew mm-hmm. like I, I adore the things that they're doing with that um that uh and uh and this one uh, nick this is a bond villain like this okay. is mustache twirling mm-hmm. to the to the to the top degree my friend price, like this was <laughs> price gives it his absolute all oh man scene chewery oh. in this movie and he's just like the perfect like He's like not the. I just found that they really did a good job with him because, you know, he's obviously more of like the psychological, like tech villain, but like he has like a certain confidence of him. There was a lot of trappings I think they could have done with that character that they didn't, but they gave him like the utmost confidence that he was always a threat mm-hmm. they gave him some oh i mean should i just go ahead and uh and, and play go, it now go ahead and play so it. this was a scene that i absolutely loved this character so basically what's going on is so, like th- yeah, so explain let's explain the character a little bit more because yeah. we've talked about him over the in the pre-production but basically elliot carver is like a big you know a kind of media moogle who moogle yeah that's a Final Fantasy creature. <laughs> Media mogul. Uh, Media mogul. Uh, yes. So he's a Media mogul who's like, he's kind of like his own, like, you know, he's kind of like off to the side, like all these kind of bigger media companies that kind of make fun of him a little bit throughout the movie. Right. But basically his thing is like he, um, he's launching this big network and his whole deal is that he creates the news stories. Right. So he, like, you know, causes plane crashes and, and you know, murders and stuff like that. And then he has the first headline for it. Well, that's what's always cool because they truly make him, like, again, mustache twirly. They make him insane. Like, there's no, like, bigger, grander, like, uh, like thought about humanity. He's just like, oh, and then we'll get the news story and, like... But then he's kind of like also kind of like and by way I kind of will control everything. Yeah, and but he he's is like the type of person who's like he like he has like a bunch of screens and he's like, what kind of chaos are we causing today? Well, okay, so we yeah. get introduced to him and you know the cold open or the the opening happens and he does his thing and then he's basically setting up all the pieces and he has all these other like generals and world leaders like on all the multiple screens and like this is how he uh, this is his big uh, speech for it. Gentlemen and ladies, hold the presses. This just in. By a curious quirk of fate, we have the perfect story with which to launch our satellite news network tonight. It seems a small crisis is brewing in the South China Seas. I want full newspaper coverage. I want magazine stories. I want books. I want films. I want TV. I want radio. I want us on the air 24 hours a day. This is our moment. And a billion people around this planet will watch it, hear it, and read about it from the Carver Media Group. There's no news like bad news. Dude, a villain after my own heart. That, mm-hmm. That's how I want to see my Bond villain. It's, just like, it's, 
it's such a fun performance throughout the entire movie. And even if, like, again, even if, like, the the very nature of Carver is very simplistic, yeah, like that kind of over the top performance by Price gives it that energy that mm. make it so memorable. Well, I also feel it. like they did a good job of making him threatening too, because they do play the thing like with like he. So it's his wife who was a previous fling of James Bond mm-hmm. and it's then he finds out pretty easily that you know she is helping out Bond yeah. and then he just has her killed yeah, like immediately. immediately and I and that's the kind of things like they could have gone into the trappings of like oh my wife but like you know to make He's him like, like a formidable villain yeah. and then they like make him like they get him in maybe not like a fighter but they get him in and on the action like he's on the sub with everybody else like he's over like there is something kind of cool about he's this media mogul with all this tech available, but he's also overseeing like like arms deals and yeah. like the violence of it too. So yeah. I guess all right, so here's my segment where I explain what the plot of the movie is. Yep. So basically and this is a, another pretty simple one. So basically Elliot Carver mm-hmm. is making essentially what he's trying to do is he's trying to make this uh this um He's he's feigning what is it an attack between between China and America yeah between yeah. China and uh, Britain in Britain yeah yeah and he's trying to basically make this uh uh he's orchestrating this attack between these two nations uh and it will be catastrophic with like big results and he's also pulling the string so certain people will be leaders at the top like when it's all right. said and done and again his biggest plan is that when it's all said and done. Not only will he have the pieces he wants in like government and politics set up, but he will also get the the news story, exclusive story, the yeah. exclusive story, and then essentially control all of because that's another bit he goes on like he's going to be the primary source of news in China, uh, yeah, and uh, but uh, frankly, all over the world. Yeah. As well, because they don't really get into it, but they kind of also do the demonize the internet thing. Mm-hmm. Like he's like, we're it's like we're broadcasting live to everybody, <laughs> and um, but that's kind of like what Bond is is Bond's up, against. up against, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was kind of. I know I've been talking about him for a while, but he was kind of the highlight. Of, no, of I, th- the movie I think he's absolutely the highlight of this movie. I think like he. He is the most memorable thing every time he's on scene, and it's just because he is so maniacal and so, again, over the top that it's just kind of, you know, m- makes it stand out. Right, right. So especially for us, like for you and me, this is that's just kind of something that we yeah, both, both yeah. enjoy. Yeah, and I think it was a good, like they knew it was a tasteful time to go to that direction because we had kind of like a more like we. D- like Goldeneye gave us the villain we really hadn't seen before in a Bond movie where it's like the traitor but also kind of like the brother in arms and then also making a commentary on see I think that was the thing about Goldeneye where they do make the commentary on like the demons of the past coming Mm -hmm. back to haunt you and what this job does to like legacies and and a man and a man and um like this one doesn't quite go there it's very much like it's very much more straightforward. It's a straight action like movie, really. Yeah. It's like not there's not much more meat to this. To actually divorce. reminded me more of like that late eighties, nineties action movie mm-hmm. more so than Goldeneye. Goldeneye did. does, yeah. Especially the score. The score was very okay. So yeah, so the score is very interesting. So it's David Arnold uh, doing the score, and it's, it's he's going to be the Bond score basically through Casino Royale. Actually, okay. Uh, he's actually personally recommended by John Barry, who mm-hmm. had essentially retired from active scoring at this time. 
But basically, David Arnold was a big Bond nerd, and he put together his own kind of Bond cover song album mm-hmm. called uh, or Sacred Not Stirred, and Barry listened to it called Barbara Broccoli. It's like, you got to listen to this. I think mm-hmm. this guy's your new Bond score guy. Um, but that was basically him. And he wanted to do more of a mix of like the traditional Bond scoring with like more of a modernization of it. So you get like the, the techno beats mm-hmm. of the Bond oh, score, yeah, yeah, but yeah. you also get like the more traditional. And actually, what's cool about David is that he even, you'll, you'll see him call back to like other Bond themes. Well, was there a little bit of the GoldenEye theme in there? A little, a little bit? Like li- the doom, 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 doom. Yeah, there's, like a, that, there's that a little bit, bit of yeah, that. There's, a little bit, that there's a little bit of the From Russia with Love score in there as well. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, David Arnold gets involved with the controversy surrounding the title song, which I don't know if we want to talk oh, about. Oh, no, we'll definitely get on to, into that yeah. one. Well, well, we're talking about the music right now, so it's like... Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because we don't necessarily talk about the Bond songs or the intros that much anymore. Yeah. But well, it's just because, like, a lot of them is, like, if I like the song, I do, but it's, like, yeah. it's so... A lot of them, especially when you get to the when we got to those later, like more ones into the even the early Dalton, it's like they're all so similar. Yeah, and like like the, these ones, like we'll see it through now that we have a new kind of guy. These ones get a little bit more different, but mm-hmm. like we don't really talk about the songs as much. But this one is worth talking. But about. yeah, this one was like interesting because this was kind of like my kind of like ooh, like all right, like let's not like this was kind of like my first worry because the Bond song in this one. Well, okay, so in Goldeneye. Good, like I, I like the song. Yeah, that's, in Golden Eye, that's Tina Turner. And yeah, written by Bono and the and Edge. Actually, quite enjoy the the opening animation as mm-hmm. well. Yeah, this one, the song is fine. Cheryl Crow's song is fine. Yeah, and also like. I don't know, like, this, this was probably, like, and I don't necessarily believe in, like, oh, a dated movie, like, as a criticism, mm-hmm. but it was just so funny that, like, in this one, it was all, like, it's all digital women, and, like, it's, like, they're all wireframes from Super Smash Bros, and it's, yeah. like, because it's, like, the 90s, it's all about computers, and that was, like, the only thing I'm, like, and everything yeah. looked like models from Beast Wars, like, it's, it's like... Yeah, so there, yeah. there was a, there's a big thing, actually, about the song in this movie, which, again, is more... MGM interference, I guess you would say. Okay. Because originally, as it was written in the contract, David Arnold was going to, like Barry did in the past, mm-hmm. write the Bond song and integrate it into the score. Right. And so he would get Katie Lang to do a song called Surrender, which is actually the film. The Well, I'll get to that in a second. So he, he wrote Katie Lang, Surrender. That's going to be the song he's going to integrate into the store. But MGM's like, well, no, we, we need a big name. Again, this is our big Bond movie. It's our big stock mm, right. offering. We, we need – so they put out feelers and had a bunch of people and artists write songs, basically pitch them songs. Mm-hmm. And they ended up picking Sheryl Crow, mostly because she was the biggest name person at To which time. I think your joke was like the the clearest indicator that this was in the 90s was mm-hmm. that it was a Sheryl Crow, Crow song. song. <laughs> so, but, so basically – and – there was a fight between Eon and MGM about what song they were going to use. Mm-hmm. MGM won and put the Sheryl Crow song in front. So Eon and um, Arnold decided to put the Katie Lang song over the end credits. And actually, that's the song that you do hear throughout the score is mm. the Katie Lang song. See, but and like the so the song at the end credits, yeah, much better theme song. Mm-hmm. Like even like as we were listening, to, I'm like, that's a much better theme song. It is tomorrow. Never die. <laughs> like, it was just surrender. Tomorrow yeah. will arrive. It's just so much more memorable and better than. And I didn't even sit through the whole credits. I just heard like maybe a couple minutes of it. I'm yeah. like, that's way better mm-hmm. of a theme. Mm-hmm. But like, so that that was my first indicator. But but I mean, not everything about the opening was a bust. Now, oh, okay, so the the, the main opening <laughs> sequence was actually 
another survivor of the original script. Like the first script yes, also had yeah. this as well. Like mm-hmm. the which is um, you you cut to MI the opening sequence is MI six and like M and everybody are like basically at their kind of like you know kind of control headquarters and they're like they have like the White Knight which is Bond like spying on this thing and then the the you know the British army and the the you know the military gets involved and they launch a missile at this like basically like illegal bizarre mm-hmm. arms dealer, but then Bond was like no no don't do that because it reveals that there's actually nuclear missiles oh, like, yeah. there. Yeah. So Bond then has to which take- is kind of like it's a little dig at like you know M's like no my man has to complete their mission but the government's just like send in the missiles yeah. Send in the nukes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so, and then it's so, like, oh, so, they so, had just waited for Bond. They would know that. Yeah. So Bonds basically has to get those nukes out because uh, they're on a plane. Yeah. It moves, has to get on the plane and get them out before the the right. missile hits. But the you're, you're skipping over one of the best parts. Well, no, no, but but that's like okay. the lead up because he's in the plane, right? Yeah. No, he's, no, but you're but you're, the first part is like, and we I, we I, we must have talked about this on the on the show before. But as you know, Nick. I'm a huge fan of when the stakes have never been oh, higher. Oh, yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> so I, I, was thinking, I, I was thinking the other thing you really liked, yes. Once again, and I may have explained this already, but I love in a movie when something happens or if there's a line of dialogue or a series of events that happens where essentially like the the drama gets raised to a point where I like to call it the stakes have never been higher moment. Yeah. So it's like, so that moment when they're like, wait a minute, there's like a nuclear missile on that, like on that, uh, on that plane, on that base, on that base, and if we destroy it, I can't remember the exact line, but it's like it's we're gonna wipe out all of like Eastern Europe or like so, yeah. something like that. So and then I was like, oh, dude, the stakes of oh, like I love yeah, stuff it like really, that. really is just legitimate. The stakes have never been higher, <laughs> and it's like just the cold open of the thing. But and do you want to lead up to this? Yeah. Or, so yeah, then yeah. now Bond is in the plane and like he's knocked out the guy behind him like in the plane, so he can get the he can get the missiles away. Right. Uh, so the 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 other missile hits the base, but like it doesn't hit the nukes because bonds on the plane and then the other guy wakes up and basically starts like trying to like you know punch bond and trying yeah. to get oh him. there's a bit about this i always forget that's also spectacular but yeah. go ahead yeah so he you know he gets bond and then bond eventually you know gets him out right yeah and then- well but that's another thing like because i always forget about this because it's also like a dog fight in the air too yeah. and then bond is able to fly under uh, covertly under the enemy jet mm-hmm Presses the eject button. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the only, like, how do I describe this? The guy in the backseat ejects from out of the plane and somehow just flies through the bottom of the plane above him into the seat. And then <laughs> like, it, how? And then it, like, explodes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, then, and then it explodes. And to and which then- Bond responds, backseat driver. <laughs> yes! It's a top ten Bond quips. Brosnan is a very good quipper. He is, but one of my concerns did come to light in this movie, where I'm like, not all the quips work. <laughs> no, they don't. Like this is one of those things. Like if you commit to doing it every single time, you're gonna have maybe some mm-hmm. not great ones. There, there is another one that I quite enjoy. Which one? Which one? Which was is that? the one where he's. When he's having sex with the with his uh, language tutor. Oh yes, 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 yeah. So Money Penny calls him because like oh like basically Britain's about to go to war with China over, over what Carver's doing. Mm-hmm. And then he's well, first of all, he's just, Brosnan says I'm brushing up on a little Dutch. Yeah. And then uh, Money Penny, they're they're talking about it, and and Money Penny, 
um, basically eventually says, you always were a cunning linguist, James. <laughs> and, and then M comes, and then she looks at M, and, and Money Penny's like, don't ask. And Money Penny, M's like, don't tell. <laughs> That's really funny. The the other thing, wait, let me mention this one other thing before I get back to Money Penny. But like the in terms of quips and everything, there was one where you and me thought the same exact thing. And I'm like, how did they get, how did this get by? So basically... James kills a guy by basically tossing him into a printing press at one point. And the guy, he throws the body in there, and then all the paper comes up, and it's all bloody as it's going through reams. And Bond's thing, uh, Bond's quip is, they'll print anything these days. To which Nick and I said, no, the quip is, what's black, white, and red all over? over. Like, come on! We did, we did say that at the same time. They, they, they set it up for you. But going back to Money Penny and thing, this was another one of my enjoyable things. Was like, I just love this almost family dynamic they're creating with the MI6 crew. Mm-hmm. Because they don't really play into... Because the last movie was all about maybe some of the contentious relationship between... M and Bond. M and so. Bond. And, and this one... And, and even Money Penny and Bond. Right. And this one, I'm glad they didn't belabor that point. And... Mm-hmm. And this Money Penny is kind of funny because it, we're kind of getting into that area of like, uh, like there, there's an attraction and there's some teasing, but you know, I, Money she doesn't seem like the type of person who's also waiting around, right? Either. Like it's it's so kind of it's, like, it's more so in the it's more so on like the later like the later Millis Maxwell Majumore stuff where it was more so like they're just kind of. There's the teasing, but there's buddies, as opposed to like the early Lois Maxwell Connery stuff, which was more like, oh, she is waiting around. Yeah, yeah. And but I, I do love it because now they, they're getting into like everybody knows James Bond shit at this point. Yeah. Like everybody mm-hmm. that they like give him shit for it now. So they're like in the car and then like doesn't M say something like Oh, I, uh, er, so basically they're talking about like, okay, they believe it's they don't want to say it publicly yet, or they don't want to say it to like the Prime Minister, but they believe Elliot Carver is is involved with this thing. Right. Uh involved with the sinking of this mysterious sinking of the ship in the China Sea. And M's like, Oh, you know, if you need to, you can uh, go to your uh you can go to your ex uh, or ex-lover, Paris, who's right. his wife. And Bond's like, you know about that? And, and M's like, queen and country. And yeah. then and then Money Penny goes on to say basically like, uh, you know, hump her or like, you know. No, you're going to – it's like you're going to – no, because I think M's the one who's like, you're going to have to pump her for in- information. Yeah, and then Money Penny's like, you'll just have to figure out how much pumping is necessary to yeah. something like that. And then like Bond's kind of has a smirk on his face. Yeah, so. but it is in a way like I do love like – like, Bond, you know, has a shit-eating grin, but I do love, like, these little moments in which, like, all his, like, colleagues are kind of getting a little bit of the one-up on him a yeah. little bit, and mm-hmm. and, and then, then yeah. I like that, and then, um, and then of course, we have uh, Q, uh, the Q scene. Q scene is, is there's, there's well, there's two parts of that Q scene, and it's great. The first, oh, yeah, the, the payoff to that Q yeah. scene is the first amazing. Part, yeah, the first part is when he's in the Avis outfit, and he's yes. basically like, what insurance do you need? And it's like uh, fire damage, almost yeah. definitely. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then like the, the the end line where it's like anything else, it's like you'll need insurance from me if you damage this car, James, mm-hmm. or whatever, like whatever it is. Uh, but then there's the second part of the scene where he's where he was actually introducing the gadgets and, and stuff like that, and he eventually introduces probably the most major gadget from this movie is the remote controlled car. Mm-hmm. 
um, with the with the Nokia, with the Nokia phone or like, which of course Bond knows how to because they they do like uh, Q's like oh it's a little tricky to yeah so you know, Q's, hand Q, Q's like trying to demonstrate it but he keeps like backing into the wall and it's very like start and stop and like you know it's a lot more uh, challenging than uh, you would think but you'll get the hang of it and Bond's like let, uh, let me see if I might touch yeah well there's also so, again oh oh wait no there, there's another great joke in this when he's like. Because the the voice of the car is like like this British like female voice, yeah. and then Q's like I was like I thought like you would uh, listen to uh, you would be more apt to listen to a female voice, and, and James Bond's like I think I've met her. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, oh, well, but then amazing. but then he's like Bond's like let me see how he responds. She responds to my, touch. <laughs> yeah. and then he like perfectly moves the car around and the Bond themes plays, and, and Q's like grow up 007. Yeah, yeah, that um, was that was pretty great. So just I mean like I we should. There's a lot still to get through. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, we have time. Um, um, I, plenty of time. I, I, I want to talk about Terry Hatcher real quick. Yeah. Like, well, I, we can talk about like just the Bond girls in general, yeah. well, but Terry, starting like, with Terry Hatcher. All right. So I get the idea. I, I get like, you know, um, you know how Terry Hatcher's death or Paris's death, you know, makes Carver more, more ruthless. But generally speaking, Paris is a pretty nothing character. Well, it's that. I mean, she's is, just she's she's there to get fridged. Yeah. But, but even then, like, it doesn't really affect Bond all that much. Like, yeah. it, it's, there's no, like, it happens at the time, at the time of death, he's obviously upset. But, like, even later, when it's like, I hope you're not out for revenge, James is like, I'm just trying to prevent a war. Like, there's nothing a, really, there's nothing yeah. really there. It's really, like, you could make this exact same movie without the Paris Carver character. And, like, it, you wouldn't be changing that much. And you could have found another way to make Carver more menacing. Mm-hmm. Because, really, like, Paris is a nothing character. Well, there's a couple issues with that, and I don't necessarily get as bothered with it, but I can't disagree with anything you're saying. And I think some of the problems are because this is like kind of like that off and on Bond trope of like you have the two Bond girls, the one that dies or is like only in a little bit of it, and Mm -hmm. the one who is like the actual one that is throughout the film. Yeah. Um. But yeah, it's it's a weird thing because, and I always kind of get like like kind of paranoid about this because so they introduce a character like that and the way they introduce her it's funny like this is what it was in earlier drafts like i almost felt like am i supposed to know like was this was she in like another Uh, movie i just don't recognize her so like she's in there and you know and they do the thing you know exactly where it's gonna go you know she's not gonna make it out of here it doesn't also help that like her death is kind of bookend by like a weird comedy beat. Either. Okay, we gotta like, talk. We gotta talk about this. We absolutely have to talk about this. One of the oddest comedy beats. And in, I don't even. I don't even know if I thought I didn't like it. It was just so it, no it, weird. It's, it's the weirdest, <laughs> oddest comedy beat in in any of these Bond movies. So yeah, essentially. Yeah. Basically, when when Elliot finds out that his wife actually, and this is including the slide whistle. This, this is this, this is, is weirder than yeah. the slide whistle. So <laughs> so eventually, uh, when Carver finds out from his guy, from his hacker dude, who's the most stereotypical hacker, yeah, fat yeah, hacker guy you yeah. can find. But like he finds out, like yeah, no, she's she formerly Bond lover. He's gonna help her out. She's like, okay, we gotta call the doctor to kill her, or whatever. Yeah. And so later, like Bond has gone through this pretty cool action sequence where he gets like this gps thing that would tell him like where the ship actually sunk so they can find out what happened like Mm -hmm. that that whole action sequence i thought was really cool um but that's the one with the newspaper line anyways 
So he, he gets in the car and he's like, oh, like Elliot calls him and he's like, oh, you have two things for me. You have my GPS tracker and you have my wife in your hotel room. Mm-hmm. And so he goes up to the hotel room and find, and then there's a news report playing where it's like, oh, Paris Carver has died. And then he finds her body. But then coming into the room is this like German doctor guy. Yeah. It's the doctor or like who's whatever. Like, who's yeah. Like, who's like, like, a, like a kind of a, he's a professional killer. Yeah. And he like, kind of looks like. Like Inspector Clouseau, <laughs> yeah, like he, he comes yeah. in and and then that was like another thing. Like, am I supposed to know no. who this is? Right. So he comes in and he gives him this whole speech. He's like, "It's going to look like you killed her, and then it's going to be a suicide." And I'm really good at doing these. I'm 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 perfect at celebrity overdoses yeah, yeah, and yeah. stuff like that. He's like, I could. He's like, I could be from uh, like what did he say? He's like, I could be twenty blocks away and do the appropriate gun wound. Thank you very much, uh, yeah, Bob. Yeah, I, yeah, I am. I'm a prof- professional and expert at my thing well then so this is going on and bond's like kind of being like and it's also like it's played and like the guy looks like a little like comedic and yeah Yeah. it's just so uh, but but that's not even like the the weirdest yeah yeah. so then at the same time bond uh the other henchmen like stamper and the uh, carver's other goons are trying to get this gps tracker out of bond's car but like they can't open it like the windows are like shatterproof or whatever it is and so Stamper calls the doctor and like the doctor's like really like I'm in the don't yell in my ear I'm in the middle of something (laughs) you know and then he's like oh we can't get in the car it's like what do you want me to do call the auto club like yeah it's just to kind of succinctly put it it's like this weird bit of like he's about to kill them and then they call him on the phone and then they're like well we need the code he's like oh I'm so sorry it's It's like like, they need the code it's like (laughs) I'm so sorry. I'm, this is so embarrassing. Yeah. I mean, I've been meaning to kill you, but they they need to code your car. Yeah, so it, can you just give them the code to your car so I can kill you now. Yeah, and it like, and, and this then is, it's like, but and then it's like, it's like this is the same scene where we just revealed that like this person basically died for Bond to raise the stakes of the movie. Like in, in theory, yeah, but. That it's also like this weird comedy scene yeah. too. It's very weird. It's it's a very very odd. Like it's still honestly one of the oddest yeah. sequences. And comedy. then after that is the remote control car. Yeah, chase, which right? is probably my favorite action sequence in the movie. Yeah, I would agree because, because like that one was really cool. It's basically Bond is like in the backseat, like using all the remote controls of the car, and then it, it buttons in an amazing way because at the you know Q's always like make sure you return the car in one piece yeah. or at least return the car, and then Bond does this thing where he does all of his tr- tricks with uh, and gets rid of all the goons, and his final move is to drive it off the top of like a parking garage, yeah. and it flies right into an Avis Center. Yeah. And I loved it because there wasn't like a quip or anything. It's just like complete yeah, visual humor. But there's a lot of really fun moments. It's like the car going back and forth, but the best moment of that scene is... Oh, yes! Yeah, see, that's why this movie is fun because there is some things where yeah. I'm like, 100. percent This is so Bond is driving this car, and like, there's some like, there's you know the kind of funny thing where the the car is talking to him. It's like, you must slow down, you must be safe, you know, make sure you have your seatbelt on, all that sort of stuff. But it, but basically, like, they've shot the car, and the windows are shattered. Like, the front and back windows are shattered. Bond's like ducking in the back seat because his phone has like a, a camera to the car, and he right, can turn yeah, it from yeah. there. So at one point, a guy comes with like a rocket launcher. And he shoot, like he like he aims it at the car and he's coming right right at Bond, but the rocket 
goes straight through the first window. Because there's a hole there's in a both, hole, the fir- both the front yeah. and the back. So it goes just straight through the car, through the, <laughs> through the windshield, through the back, and just hits like the other car chasing Bond. And what makes it hilarious, it's not like Bond does like some sort of maneuver or move. It's just he shoots the rocket and it just coincidentally mm-hmm. just goes right through yeah, the that's, car. Yeah, but that's a hole through the car park. And then like there's like cool, cool things where like he gets to like a dead end or he gets to like a blockade and he has to turn around and stuff. And yeah. he eventually gets out of the car and, and yeah, drives it into the Avis return thing. So, uh, it, it, that, I mean, that's probably the most yeah, fun. Yeah, all good stuff. But I guess I kind of skipped over it, too. Yeah, I mean, like, Paris, it's like, whatever. <laughs> no, I mean, it's just, it's just nothing. There's just nothing really there to really take in. It's just like she's a character. She's introduced as an ex-lover, and she dies. She's fridged. That's right, really yeah. what it is. Uh, but speaking of the other Bond girl, the other Bond girl, Lee Wen, uh, or Lee Wen is, is her name. Uh, uh, yeah, I think it's Lee, Lee Wen. Um, so I have a funny story about this. Yes. I did not recognize that as Michelle Yeoh when I, uh, or Yeoh or Yao. Yeah. 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 I did not recognize her until I saw her name in the credits at the end of the movie. I was wondering, I was wondering because, and I'm only saying it this way because I don't think I've ever, it's like one of those actors where. Like, I know her, like, later on in years. Mm-hmm. Like, you've seen her as an older Yeah, like, and, like, you, you know, know, she was just in Crazy Rich Asians, and yeah. it's like, and, you know, she's a badass, and it's awesome, but it's just, I have, I just have no recollection of younger her. You know how some actors, like, it's just, you know, younger them just looks, you're just not used to seeing yeah. them. And I'll be honest, I just, I did not, I did not recognize mm-hmm. that was her, so I was like, oh, fuck, that's, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and yeah, no, I mean, she is definitely at home in a movie like this. Yes. Um, you know, she gets a few comedy beats in the, like the, like the, when she's like walking down the wall on right. the table. Well, pretty what funny. I love about it, like, I just love now that you're kind of even more establishing this universe where like every person has like crazy gadgets, like right, every secret right. agent. Cause it's like, basically she's a secret agent for the Chinese government. Right. Yeah. And um, so it's just. Yeah, that's really the best way to describe Cause she, her mission is kind of the same thing yeah as it's just bond. like she's yeah. she's just on a similar pathway to bond and like even at the there's like the release party for carver's thing where bond poses as a banker and that's where he first meets her because she's just on the same mission she's just there undercover trying to figure out exactly what happened with this boat and mm-hmm. they have the same leads but it's like she has all these crazy gadgets too and has her own oh like, yeah little, they go to the warehouse and like, it's like yeah they, but it's just like this idea that like you know as every it's not just like britain and q that's just making these crazy gadgets no, now that i think about it they don't really use them though. There's no. just that bit where he like opens up like the the Asian fan and then yeah. like darts come out of yeah. it. Yeah, or like he like, he touches the he touches the Chinese dragon and fire shoots. Yeah, out. yeah, which very you, very a lot of Chinese based gadgetry. <laughs> you know, probably you know. No, no, I think it works. It, it works. works for what it, because it's like they're in the middle of like this. Yeah, I think it's it's fine. But Though she, it does kind of make you laugh. In what scenario is she going to use like a fan dart? Like, <laughs> like um, um, but but no, but but Michelle, it's like it's it's it is cool seeing her from her like action hero days because mm-hmm. she really legitimately is like probably like the greatest female like Hong Kong action star ever. Right, like, just in terms of like her legacy. Uh, in in that film world, and to see her kind of you know she gets her cool like punches and kicks and 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 like even like her stuff with Bond on the bike like even if the whole action I kind of agree with you that the whole action sequence is really work. I do think no, that, it's a cool conceit either yeah, way. And, and I think yeah. their I think their interplay specifically on the bike and their interplay especially in like the beginning of that sequence and when they're captured together at Carver's base, I think mm-hmm. like it's really cool. Yeah, I mean I do think sometimes it's a case where you know. 
They don't really. They don't always have to get together at the end. I think there's a version of this movie where it's maybe even better if mm-hmm. it's just like, oh, maybe yeah, there is some sexual tension, but it's like because they do the old school, you know, like Bond, like oh, they're stuck, they're lost at sea. Yeah, they're that lo- that bothered me because like so they're in the ship wreckage at the end of the movie, and like a boat's coming looking for them. And then they're like, they're looking for us, James. It's like, oh, let's let's just take a minute to ourselves. I'm like, they're gonna think you're dead. They're not well, gonna I mean, come it, back. It is a set, it is the ending to Goldfinger. Yeah, I know. It's the, I know. It's the ending to Goldfinger. It's the ending to From Rush with Love. It's the yeah. ending to all those early Bond. But movies. at least weren't they on a raft in Goldfinger? Or something? Yeah, yeah. We're like, but they're also like they no no because they they they're looking for them, but they seclude themselves in like a forest and cover themselves with a parachute. Yeah, but like at least they're like on land. Like these guys are just yeah. in a wreckage mm-hmm. in the middle of the in international yeah. waters. Too. International waters, yeah. But um, yeah, no, I, I mean, but, but I, liked I, her. Enjoy, I enjoyed her. Another bit where the script wasn't entirely there. I thought where like kind of the seams were showing. Where so they have that whole bit where they're on the motorcycle, mm-hmm. then they shower, mm-hmm. and she kind of like does the whole like switcheroo, traps him there, and it's like so long, Bond, and they go out. And then, like the and, next scene and is just and immediately him like, finding her again. Yeah, like, immediately, yeah. like he's like kind of slaving her from like a, an ambush at her at her base. Yeah, that that was kind of like an example of like yeah, yeah. script's not entirely. But I guess there. I do. I also thought they had good chemistry. Like at the scene on the boat where they're, um, you know, talking to each other and kind of the whole like, oh, it's like you're you're, I oh, I thought the communists uh, didn't have fun. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah. No, I th- but I thought that scene was like they they did have good interplay yeah, with each no, other. Yeah, no, but that's what I'm saying. Like, I think it almost would have worked better if it was just two secret agents yeah. and not ne- with just and, some. And I, I, it like, here's the thing: it would have worked better if it was two secret agents, and it would have worked better if this was just a more complete script. To be quite honest, oh well, yeah, like, I mean, that, 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 but that's at the end of the day, like that's going to be most of the issues with this movie. It's just like if you had a script, like because. Because even like then you could, you know, you could have not necessarily done a spy who loved me type of thing, but you could have done a little more interplay with like, okay, now you have these powers, and maybe, maybe even like if it wasn't so, you know, out of the way for mm-hmm. MGM, like you could have like not necessarily referenced the like, you know, it wouldn't have been surrounding the Hong Kong thing, but maybe you could have referenced it a little bit more. Maybe yeah, been like, yeah. okay, now our, our governments, you know, we were, you know, we're still kind of friendly, but you know, that sort yeah, of yeah, maybe, yeah, I think but, you but, could have but done I just that. think that not necessarily the wet direction to do it, but I just think like you you have a little bit more time in this script, and like sure. a lot of this stuff would have been more expanded upon. I think just would have would have brought it up to that golden eye level. Uh, yeah, I don't disagree. I was just thinking of another fun thing that uh that the bad guys like submarine shoots a missile that can crawl through a boat. That's kind of fun. Mm. <laughs> oh, uh, can we talk about real quick uh, the return to Jack Wade? Oh yeah, oh yeah. He he doesn't quite get as very good. No, like, I mean, it's but he very, is such like a. That was another thing. I think they wanted him a lot more, but because of the quick nature of this production, like he only had a couple days to come on. So. Yeah, yeah. But but he still, he has a ridiculous, a, a very American line here. What what I don't remember this. It's one. like he's like uh, unofficially we have nothing to do with this, and or like officially we have nothing to do with this. And Bond's like unofficially we don't want to see World War Three start unless it comes from us. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, then there, because there's a whole oh, thing where no. like he's, Bond's gonna do the Halo jump, and there's this like other like like military sergeant's like, "Do you understand? You have to do it this at this point. Do not put your head back." And he's like yelling at Bond, and then then the three guys are like, 
oh, you know what? By the way, like the the boat actually sunk in like in Vietnam waters, and they're all like, wait, what? Like, does he have any American things on him? He's like, yeah, his 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 uh his fins, his parachute, all have like all have stars and stripes on them. He's like, oh man, if he gets caught, they're not gonna be happy, right? Which and is but, also but, a weird but, bit because and then Bond jumps out and Jack's like, he didn't even say goodbye. Yeah, it's like they could have told him that. But then also it doesn't pay off. No, it does not at all. <laughs> so what's the point of the joke? Yeah. Uh, but but yeah. a brief brief appearance and our final appearance of Jack Wade, unfortunately. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we got enough of him. That's a pretty good like American asshole line, though. Yeah. That that, that is pretty good. Um, I'm trying to think of if there's anything else. Well, I mean, like the third and, hack happens. And yeah. It's, it's the fine. henchman is fine. I thought the henchman was kind of a little bit derivative, mm-hmm. but being kind of like very much like in yeah, it's very much a kind of a traditional like big, like big one of, one of Hans Gruber's crew. Yeah, it crew, doesn't. Like, it's does, a, it really doesn't fine. have like the finesse of fighting that like Necros had in like Living Daylights or like or anything like that. Yeah. Like like doesn't doesn't really do much to stand out. I was kind of I did have this thought where if like if you just like. Mixed and match peaches, peaches, pieces of Bond movies. Like if you made On a Top and uh, uh, Boris, like part of uh, Elliot's crew. Yeah, that's a Bond movie mm. right there. <laughs> that, that's a. Was there another thing you laughed at though? Where like they're talking about? Oh, there's like the seven points of shock. Oh, he's going. I this is a dumb thing I laughed at, but I laughed at it because like he's going to have like he like it's like these Chinese torture knives where it's yeah. like they you know it's. They, it's the ancient art of being able to torture somebody by hitting like the right pressure points. And he's yeah. like, he's like, it's like there are many sensitive pressure points that uh, that are the source of energy in the body, such as the heart or genitals. <laughs> and I, and it just, I don't know. It was just, it made me laugh. Yeah, I get a kick. I, so I mentioned it briefly before, but I get a kick out of like just how traditionally like nerdy fat guy Carver's hacker is. Sure, sure. Like sure. he's just, he's just like. He's just so like he's he's a hot pocket away, <laughs> like in the in the core. He's a hot pocket away from being like everything you think about, like a a, a hacker nerd. Yeah, guy. yeah. Um, uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else. Definitely. I mean, I don't really have too much else to say. No, about I mean, it other really than not. I mean, I enjoyed it. I really, I really did enjoy it. I was expecting for whatever reason for there to be a much more significant drop off in quality. Um, and I think it's like definitely a movie that it just doesn't have a lot of the finesse that makes it like that could elevate it. Right. But it is one of my more favorable watches of it because I do think that this time around they are at least touching upon the enjoyable aspects of Bond. This, in this case, the villain, uh, the chemistry between characters and some of the sillier aspects yeah. that they still don't seem to be afraid of, which is what I like. Yeah, it's like I do think yeah. like what I what I've re enjoyed about rediscovering the Brosnan films. I, I think like they do more of that mix of kind of like some of the harder edge stuff, but still with the quips. Sure, you know, like I, I, to me, I think there's more that I still enjoy about it in like the Dalton movies and like some of the Middlemore films. But like I think I'm enjoying Brosnan the. Like I, I still think his performance in Goldeneye is super iconic, but I think like I enjoyed him a lot more in this movie than I thought I was going to, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because I, I, I know there's a more gradual drop, but I still think like Brosnan brings that kind of charm. That sure, just I, charm. I actually don't think Brosnan is ever bad. No, I don't think he's ever yeah, terrible. But I, but it's also one of those things where again, as you've kind of noticed, I haven't really talked too much about him in general. I think he's just good in the role. I don't think he's really spectacular. I don't yeah. think he necessary. I think maybe Goldeneye is like, oh, he's like pretty good in that. Yeah. But no, Gold, other, Goldeneye is his best performance. Uh, otherwise, like he may he 
kind of just maybe one of those actors where he just kind of has to just give 90% and it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, oh, no, I don't disagree. Honest, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, so uh, I, I, I enjoyed this one uh, quite a bit. All right. Yeah. Well, are we ready? I guess we should just also get it out of the way. Harrison Ford in this movie is one of the generals that Elliot Carver's talking to Mm -hmm. on his multi-screened computer (laughs) when he's giving that speech from earlier. Definitely. That's what I say who it is. All right. Anyway. All right. So, uh, Nick, uh, shall we wrap up with a post up? With yeah, a, a, ra- a uh, aftermath. Aftermath. That's what, that's what we call this. All <laughs> I this forgot. I forgot. All right. So, Tomorrow Will Never Dies does get completed on time um, and uh, has a worldwide premiere December 9th, 1997 in um, in uh, London. At the uh, And then they actually had an after party at uh, the former house of Ian Fleming's publisher. Oh, okay. That's cool. weird. Oh, this, by the way, this is the first Bond movie to have absolutely zero connections with any of the Ian Fleming work. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, so not even like, because Goldeneye had the name of, you know, and, and even had slight similarities to the Moonraker book plot. Mm-hmm. Um, this one is just a totally 100% original, nothing ever taken from the Bond books. Cool. Um, and uh, so then it has a general release on UK and, Ice, and Iceland, for some reason, it says here, uh, specifically on the December 12th and the next week in the United States on like December 19th. Mm. Um the movie opened up number two at the box office uh, its opening weekend. Uh-huh. It made a $25 million uh-huh. because it opened in the United States the same weekend as Titanic. Oh, interesting. And, of course, Titanic would was a major surprise hit. Nobody expected it to make as much money as it did. It became see, one of the highest grossing movies I ever. I see crossover potential here. Instead of an iceberg, that weird boat-climbing missile can sink the iceberg. Mm-hmm. The, the iceberg. That's my phone. Yes, it is the Banjo-Kazooie song. Mm-hmm. Okay. Continue. Uh, so uh, it would end up grossing worldwide of $330 million. So just $20 million below gold, uh, Goldfinger. Goldeneye. <laughs> I, I knew I was going to do that at some point. So $20 million behind Goldeneye's worldwide gross, but MGM is still very happy and, and does indeed do its public stock offerings, which were okay. That was at the end of the day. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Though they were so happy with uh, the performance of Tomorrow Never Dies that for the first time, MGM considered a spin-off movie. Mm. Uh, so Jinx? Not Is yet. it Jinx? Not oh, yet. No. So they were considering uh, a spin-off movie with Michelle Yao's character. Okay. Um, but the talks about it were very brief, and Michelle Yao would end up instead going to film uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Mm. Uh, which was, you know, one of the most successful foreign films ever, and was actually her absolute major starring position. Like he was became a major international star from that. Right. Um, reviews were the movie were mixed. Um, people did know about the rush production, mm. and I think some people told. Yeah. Uh, Roger Ebert liked the movie though. Okay. Roger Ebert gave it three out of four stars. And he said, "Tomorrow Never Dies gets the job done. Sometimes excitingly, often with style." And a has a villain slightly more contemporary and plausible than usual. Um, and then uh, James Bartolini said it was the best film villain in many years. Uh, yeah. And said Brosnan inhabits a character with a suave competence as Connery's. Uh, but as a negative review, uh, the Los Angeles Times, Kenneth, Kenneth Turan said that uh, Tomorrow Never Dies had a stodgy, been there feeling with uh, little changes from any of the previous Bond films. Hmm. Um, but it's still like. 
I, I find its legacy is that like it's enjoyable for a lot of Bond fans. Right. I think like the thing about Brosnan is that again, continuing his legacy, we'll talk about it more. But Goldeneye is really the standout and is the fan favorite, and people like Tomorrow Never Dies. But really, it is a series of diminishing returns mm. for people, and we're gonna see that as the next two films come in. Oh man, um, the Cheryl Crow song was nominated for a Golden Globe. Good for her. Good for Cheryl Crow. Mm-hmm. All right. So that really wraps up Tomorrow Never Dies. All right. Uh, so <laughs> want to talk about next time? I, I mean, yeah. I mean, li- listen, I I enjoyed it. Uh, wasn't blown away by it, but uh, you know. It, it, I, no, it's, 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 it's right, one of my more favorable bonds. Right, what can I say? It's right I on the, it. It, I, I will put it because like I will talk uh, when we, I have my list and I, you know, I have my list where it's like, I can tell you where like the edge of like the good films are. Mm-hmm. Like this is where. The films I like and the films I don't really like, kind of that meeting ground. Mm-hmm. And like Tomorrow Never Dies is really like right on, not right on the edge, but like right above that edge, if you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. it's it's right there, I like, get it. right on the good side. I get it. I uh, 100% get it. All right. It. So, um, we so got, as next, you said, even though like you kind of uh, you deflated me a little bit here, but you know, I guess you know we got another Brosnan coming out. I don't know yeah. how excited I should get for it, but you know, where are we going next time? I know next time. So we do have another Brosnan movie, but well, I'm a, I'm a little confused as I'm looking at what the next Brosnan movie is because because uh-huh. I thought that Christmas only comes yes! once a year. Yes, wait a minute. No, now I'm, I'm back on board, baby. <laughs> so yeah, so we're gonna get to Christmas a little bit early in November. Oh yes, with Doctor Christmas Jones. Oh yes, and all that comes with it. I like the, what you're saying. And the world is not enough. Oh, you know, there's not enough of Christmas Jones as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but uh, yeah, that, you know, you, you got me back on board, man. I don't know. I'm. I'm there, I don't know how I feel about the movie, but there'll definitely be one thing in there that uh, you'll see. Yeah, when, when, uh, yeah when I know. Will's been, Will's been waiting for this for a very long time. But next time's not James Bond. It's Godzilla. No, uh, we're, we're not getting to Christmas just yet. Yeah, no. Uh, in, in this time, we're going to be Christmas Ghidorah. <laughs> I mean, it's still November, so it's not like we're, or, it's October for us. So. Uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, we'll be... Uh, uh, be revisited by a old uh, an old foe mm-hmm. in the form of uh, the Hayes series, uh, Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. And the next one, very excited to see uh, to witness that one with you and to see what you think. I will be very interested because I'm a big Ghidorah fan. So, so, uh, but until then, I'm done. We're done. I'm done. All right. Plugs, plugs, do it. All right, I'm gonna get this one this time. I always mess here we this go. Up. All right, so not gonna twitch it up like I did last time. Yeah. So we have a, a Twitter account. Yes, Twitter.com/slash/bonzilla007. I've already mixed it up because I usually say the email first. Yeah, this and is the email true. is bonzillapod at gmail.com. That is also all true. right. And then we also have a Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash/bonzilla007. You can listen to Checks us on, sign cl- on SoundCloud. Yeah, uh, not sound- SoundCloud, not SoundCloud. Yeah, SoundCloud. <laughs> Sign Cloud sounds like a Seinfeld podcast. Yeah, welcome to Sign Cloud. It's us. It's a podcast, Jerry. <laughs> Kramer starting a podcast would be a really good. Like, oh yeah, that's a good. Episode. <laughs> uh, but SoundCloud.com slash Bonzilla 007. You can like us on there. Subscribe on there or on iTunes. Uh, we like when you listen to us. So keep listening, folks. And uh, that is it. That yeah. is the plugs. I cool. got through it. Possibly okay. Yeah. Yeah, can I get in there? I'll give you 90%. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, all right, Nick. That's it. We're good. We're good. Uh, see everybody uh, next time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's when I when I get that, 
down when I get those plugs down. I really am a cunning linguist. <laughs> there we go. Fit it in. <laughs>